This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. Hundreds of children have been detained in a Western-funded prison in northeastern Syria for years, including Australian teenager Yusuf Zahab, who was brought to Syria when he was 11 years old. But earlier this year, Yusuf vanished. In this episode of Today in Focus, our global news podcast, Yusuf's cousin Hala Zahab gives the family's first ever interview and asks what happened to Yusuf. Here's Today in Focus host, Michael Safi. There's this prison in northeast Syria. It houses hundreds of children, including from the UK, Australia, and parts of Europe. They're all boys, mostly teenagers. None have been convicted of any crime. And sometimes, these boys vanish, and no one can explain where they've gone. This is the story of one of them. My name is Yusuf Hisham Dahab. I'm Australian. Uh, I'm 17 years old. I just got shot by Apache. My head's bleeding. I have an injury in my head in my hand. There's no doctors here that can help me. Uh, um, I, I need help, please. I'm very scared. There's a lot of people dead in front of me. I'm scared I might die any time because of bleeding. Please help me. His name is Yusuf Zahab. That recording is one of the last times his family's ever heard his voice. To governments in the UK, Australia, Canada, and lots of other countries, Yusuf is a dilemma. One of thousands of boys who were taken into Islamic State territory by their families when they were just children. Kids who, when IS was defeated three years ago, were thrown into prisons where the vast majority, an estimated 750 children, are still jailed today. This is Yusuf's story, but also the story of those hundreds of other children, among them dozens of British kids, the boys growing up in dangerous and violent prisons, the girls in camps, with families back home begging their governments to bring them back before it's too late. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, what happened to Yusuf Zahab? You've known Yusuf pretty much his whole life, right? Like, what do you remember of him as a kid? Where do I start? When Hala Zahab talks about Yusuf... You can hear the affection in her voice. Yusuf, oh, he had the most contagious smile. Okay, he was such a beautiful boy. He was so loving. He was fun. He was adventurous. He was just a regular, typical Aussie kid. He was the youngest of four children, and he was actually the youngest grandchild in the extended family. There's about 48 of us grandchildren and he was the youngest. So not only was he the baby in his in immediate family, he was also the baby in the, in the whole family. And was he treated that way? Oh, he was. He, he had so much love around him. He was just, he was special. Hala and Yusuf were cousins, but because of the age difference, Yusuf was actually like another son. He'd come over full of energy rushing her kids towards the Xbox or to their trampoline in the backyard. When Yusuf was 11, 
in the middle of 2015, his parents said they were taking a long holiday. My aunts and uncle uh, were going on a trip to Lebanon and Yusuf was obviously tagging along. My nan was in Lebanon at the time and we just, everyone assumed, um, you know, they were going to see nan in Lebanon. And so it wasn't anything that we were concerned about, to be honest. That was the last we ever saw them. In November, months after the family had left Australia, Hala says she got a visit from Australia's security services, saying the family had entered what they called prescribed territories, places where Australians were legally banned from going for any reason. These were areas controlled by the militant group, Islamic State. It was a time when IS was rampaging across Iraq and Syria, inspiring and directing terrorist attacks around the world and drawing in tens of thousands of new recruits. Men and women, whole families, who were leaving their old lives behind to go and build a new nation. Now among them were 11-year-old Yusuf, his parents, his older sister and two older brothers. Honestly, um, it was just disbelief because my aunt and uncle, it, it just didn't make sense. They had a future here. They had a beautiful life. It didn't make sense. And did you ever hear from the family who were over there? Did you ever get a chance to ask them why they went? What were they doing? Were they safe? I think for over a year, I heard nothing from them. When did you actually hear from them? And in what form did that communication come? I think it was a text message. Just out of the blue? Yeah, just, yeah, absolutely. It was just random. And just saying, you know, how are you? It's us, you know, um, we're okay. Um... Just just very vague. It was just a very vague, almost like a, how can I explain this? Almost like a proof of life message. Hmm. And that was it. It was, it was kind of short and swift. And, and then you'd get, you know, it wasn't regular. Again, it was just sporadic text messages just saying, we're okay, everything's okay. Later, uh, this is years later, we came to know that, you know, their communication was monitored. And they couldn't really say anything about the conditions that they were in or or anything about their surroundings um, because they didn't have the freedom to do so. When you dig into how Yusuf's family ended up joining Islamic State, people usually point the finger at his oldest brother. Muhammad Zahab was a popular and charismatic maths teacher living in Sydney. When the Syrian civil war kicked off in 2011, he started travelling to the region, supposedly to do humanitarian work. In reality, he was getting involved in the fighting. He became Australia's most senior IS member and worked hard to convince family and friends to come to Syria and join him. The first to go over was his sister, Sumaya. By the middle of 2015, their whole immediate family, including Yusuf, were living in IS territory. Yusuf's parents have claimed that they didn't really approve of what IS was doing, never intended to join them. And I'm a good citizen from my work to my home. In an interview that his dad, Hisham, gave from a Syrian prison many years later, after IS had been defeated, he claimed he only went over to rescue his children and grandchildren. In separate interviews, other family members tell a different story, claiming they were tricked, that they were told Yusuf's sister had managed to escape and was heading for the Turkish border. 
and they needed to go there to help bring her back. When they did, the family, including Yusuf, were forced to cross into Syria at gunpoint. There's no way to know for sure if these stories are true. It's possible, but there are lots of reasons to be sceptical. But what does seem clear to me is that all of this was happening while Yusuf was just 11 years old, the youngest kid in the family. Whatever the adults around him were doing, how much can you blame Yusuf? And Hala, for you and your family at home, like what kinds of emotions do you feel towards the family over there? Like, do you see them as victims? Are you angry at some of them for, for putting their families in these situations? You know, later when you find out information, absolutely you're angry. Absolutely you're angry at particular, you know, individuals. I think in order to cope, you just go numb. Numb. <sighs> yeah, there's no, no other way to describe it. By April 2019, Islamic State was on its last legs. Its so-called caliphate, that had once stretched across two countries, had shrunk to a little pocket in eastern Syria, in which the last IS fighters, their families, prisoners and civilians, were surrounded, with no way out. As the enclave was pounded by airstrikes and artillery, tens of thousands of people were streaming out. Men, many with terrible injuries, women in black niqabs, and so many children, surrendering to the Kurds, the ethnic group and Western ally that controlled the area. Yusuf's two older brothers were long dead. They'd been killed in airstrikes. But he and his parents were still there, inside, terrified for their lives and talking to their family back in Sydney. The Kurds were setting up camps to house all the people fleeing the area. And Yusuf's family were being told, just walk out, go towards those camps. That's the advice we're getting so that you can come home. You need to be safe, go to the camps, go to the camps. So my auntie received the same information and she headed towards the camp with Yusuf. There was initially a Kurdish checkpoint and that's when he was separated from her. And that was actually the last time. That was the last time she ever saw him. How old was Yusuf at the time? I believe he was 14. He was too old to go with his mum to the camps. So he was then separated and we heard nothing, nothing from him, nothing about him. We, yeah, there was total silence. For how long? Oh, Two years of nothing. Yusuf was swallowed up by the makeshift prison system, built to house the 11,000 men and tens of thousands of women and children who had survived IS's final battle. Responsibility for dealing with those prisoners fell to the Kurds, and their sheer number quickly overwhelmed the few jails in the region. Schools, factories, anything the Kurds could find, were converted into prisons for the men, while the women and kids were put in sprawling desert camps, surrounded by barbed wire. Hala and others, with relatives among those detained, formed a network, and they pressed NGOs, governments, the Kurds, anyone they could find, for answers. 
Who had survived? And where were they now? For months and then years, they heard nothing about Yusuf. Until one day, somebody from one of the aid organisations working in the area called them. And that's when we got confirmation that he was alive. Yusuf had been jailed in Al-Sinar prison in the Syrian city of Hasaka, along with 3,000 men and in a youth wing, about 750 boys, including kids claiming to be as young as nine years old. Short of Yusuf being dead, this was what Hala had feared most. An unaccompanied minor in an all-males prison. These prisons, it's publicly known, they are overcrowded. They, are, they don't have the resources. They are unhygienic. They are, the men were all getting sick. Um, when the aid organisations met with Yusuf, he had a cough. He was underweight. He actually had developed tuberculosis. Conditions were really difficult. I mean, proof of life for us was was elation. We were so happy that we had gotten to him. But then you hear about, you know, where he is and the conditions he's in and, yeah, your heart breaks. And so, Hala, that was April 2021. What did you learn about Yusuf in the months that followed? Like, like tell me about once you had established that proof of life, you know, whether you were able to, to learn any more about him. So actually it was, uh, again, total silence for quite a few months. Um, you know, we were, we were begging anyone just for a line of communication. You know, let's start with a line of communication. Um, and that was difficult. Nobody, nobody could establish that, nobody. Who are you asking? Aid organisations. So we were trying to draw on anyone that would help. Uh, we were obviously contacting the authorities in Australia, I believe in September of 2019, we started to write letters to the government, making sure that the ministers themselves were aware that there are Australians stuck overseas and this boy is amongst them and he needs help and he's a minor and, you know, everything that we could basically brief up the ministers with, we were doing. Um, I myself contacted DFAT multiple times. That, that's Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Exactly. And again, no information. You'd get nothing. They would. The only response was either an automated response, or uh, I'm sorry, we don't have consular assistance in the area. In September last year, out of the blue, one of Yusuf's aunts got a phone call from a Syrian phone number. It was Yusuf. Oh, I can't even express to you the excitement. <laughs> The joy, he reached out to an aunt, an extremely short conversation. Uh, when I found out the news, I called her up and I said, is it true? She said, yes. She said, yes. He was able to call me. <laughs> he was able to call me. And it was, it was, I think, six in the morning. She thought she was dreaming. And he said, auntie, it's me. It's Yusuf. <laughs> A few weeks later, Hala's own phone buzzed with a notification. It was a huge surprise. I actually remember I was in the laundry. <laughs> I was in my laundry popping things into the dryer and my phone, you know, went off. It pinged. It was a voice message. Assalamualaikum. How are you? I miss you so much. Oh, I was so excited. I remember shaking. I remember trying to, oh, my God, uh, text back and, and, and you know, try and get my phone to work, my, my WhatsApp recording to work so I can respond to him in time. 
Alhamdulillah, I'm good. I love you. Sorry, I have no time. Just want to send you a message to you. I'm good. Alhamdulillah, how are you? Are you good? Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, I was so excited. We were elated. I was just like, are you okay? Are you okay? We've been looking for you. Please know we've been looking for you. I needed to give him the reassurance that he was not alone. That yes, okay, you know, he hadn't had contact with us in three years, but we were doing our best to find him. I wanted him to know that. And he he was trying to comfort me. Oh, my beautiful boy, he was trying to comfort me. He was like, I'm okay, I'm okay. <sighs> he was saying it was so hard and he told me, yeah, I have um, tuberculosis. He was telling me that he gets um, body aches, joint pain, I'm underweight, I'm, you know, malnourished where the conditions are overcrowded. Um, it was quite difficult. He wants to come home. When can I come home? And I told him we're working on it. We're pushing, we're working on it. We're trying to get you home. I've seen the only photo that exists of Yusuf from around this time. Taken early in 2021, he's thin, wearing a brown T-shirt, standing against the green and white concrete walls of the prison. He has the beginnings of a beard, but it's so wispy that it only serves to remind you that he's just a boy, just 16 when the photo was taken, already with two years of prison under his belt. Most of those detained by the Kurds are Iraqi and Syrian, but about 15,000 people are estimated to be from elsewhere, including Europe, the UK and Australia. An estimated 65% of all the prisoners are children. Governments have struggled for the past three years with the dilemma of what to do with these kids. They've sometimes said it's too dangerous to go into the prisons and camps and get them out. Other times they've said bringing them home could expose the public to danger. But as time has passed, as babies in the camps have grown into toddlers and boys in prison have become adults, a consensus has formed in many countries that they can't just wish this problem away. Human rights groups have been joined by national security officials like the former MI6 chief, Richard Barrett, arguing that leaving these kids to grow up in atrocious conditions in Syria is itself a threat, potentially providing tens of thousands of recruits for what remains of IS, or whatever group emerges from their ashes. Russia has repatriated 228 children. Germany, nearly 70 kids. France, about the same. But countries like Canada and Australia lag way behind. The UK has only brought home about nine children, leaving about 60 behind in the camps and prisons. At the same time, it's spent more than £16 million to build new prisons in the area, where some of these same boys are jailed. Hala says she gets that bringing Yusuf home would have come with challenges. I know he would have had to, you know, adjust. I, I was aware that he was um, struggling. That actually, that's what the aid organisation expressed to us back in 2019, that he was having nightmares and he missed his mum and he dreamt, he dreamt of hugging her. In his dreams, he was able to hug his mum. And so, yes, I know that there would have been absolutely, there would have been trauma associated with what he had been through, but we were ready and Australia has the services to be able to help him. 
and we were ready to help him throughout the journey. Around 7pm on January 20 this year, a car approached the El Sinar prison where Yusuf was detained. It was stopped at a barrier close to the prison's main gate and exploded. It was the beginning of the biggest operation by surviving IS cells since the group was defeated in 2019. As fighters descended on the jail from outside, inside, prisoners started a mutiny. They killed guards, managed to break out into the surrounding city, and started a two-week battle with the Kurds, who called in US troops and airstrikes to help. And caught in the middle of all this fighting was Yusuf. I was devastated. I was like, we have just gotten to him. Please don't let anything happen to him. I was so scared. Accounts of the attack are still hazy, but the Kurds say at some point, the IS fighters breached the youth wing of the prison and started using boys like Yusuf as human shields. On January 24th, um, I received a voice clip from him. Uh, and a lot of the kids, you know, like 15, 20 of them got killed. A lot of them are injured now. And he was telling me, I'm injured. Um, you know, there's, there was some shooting, helicopter shooting on the prison. Um, he'd received uh, an injury to his, hand, to his arm, I believe, and to his head. And he said, I'm bleeding. I've lost a lot of blood. Please, what do I do? I need help. I need help. He's, he would just tell me there's no doctors here. There's no one that can help me. Please. Make it known. Make it known. I need help. It's not clear how Yusuf got his hands on a phone, but these voice messages he managed to send out to his family and to Human Rights Watch were made public. The first time anyone had heard the voice of one of these boys detained in these prisons. Back in Sydney, Hala and her family were trying to give Yusuf advice on how to survive. I would just tell him, oh my God, keep your head down, stay safe. He would respond saying um, some of his friends had been killed. God. It was absolute chaos. I could hear the fear in his voice. And about my wound, it's actually pretty bad. I just, you know, I found a bit of bandage and I wrapped my head down with my arm. That's all. That's all I can do, yeah. They tried to tell him, stay with the other kids, but he said that was impossible. Uh, listen, about the kids thing, the kids are just everywhere. We're just mixed up here. There's no such thing as kids or no kids. Uh, and a lot of the kids, you know, like 15, 20 of them got killed. A lot of them are injured now. So, yeah. Day by day, the Kurds and Americans were regaining control of the prison, but at a huge cost. Reporters from the New York Times, who managed to reach the city immediately after the siege, talked about seeing the bodies of teenage boys in the streets surrounding the jail. They saw trucks and other construction equipment being used to take a pile of at least 80 bodies away for burial. While all of this was still going on, Yusuf, now 17 years old, was inside the prison, trying to stay alive. And then I got a text message from him. Oh, he just sounded so tired. It would have been really early morning. Um, and 
he was like, they're calling out for us to surrender. And he seemed really confused. He's like, I haven't done anything. I'm not sure. Advise me. He just kept telling me, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah, these guys want us to go to a new prison and they want us, I don't know, they want, to, they want us to, I don't know, surrender. Even though we didn't, I didn't do nothing, we didn't do nothing. I don't know what to do. I'm really scared. And he tried to maintain as much contact with us as possible um, until January 26th. What happened that day? January 26th, he texted me. He said, he sounded down and he was worried. And he said, please just tell my mom I love her. They, they want us to surrender now to the new prison. The mom 10 turns, I don't know what's going to happen to you. the last time I'm going to call you to give salams to my mom. Uh, and then his final message was, okay, I'm surrendering. We're surrendering now. We're walking out. This is probably the last time you'll hear from me. After that message, sent at 2.26pm on Sunday, January 26, Yusuf was gone. Part of you thinks, okay, you know, his voice has gone around the world. He, he'll be okay. No, no, he's going to get help soon. He, he should be fine. Everyone is aware of his situation. But then months go by and you hear nothing. Nothing gets, nothing, no news. And your heart starts to sink. In the months since January, Hala and her family kept trying to find out if Yusuf had survived and where he might be. They begged the Australian government for help, but they couldn't give them an answer. About a month ago, Yusuf's mother, detained in a camp for women and children, received a visit from the Kurds who told her they didn't have Yusuf anymore. Not that he was dead, just they didn't know where he was. The family had no idea what that meant, but it sounded ominous. And then this month we received confirmation. That Yusuf had passed away. Hala, how did you learn that, that Yusuf had passed? How did that news reach you? Uh, we were alerted by a paper. You learned in the media? Yes, we learned through the media, basically. We weren't even visited. I mean, you know, news like this, you'd expect that the Australian government would, would alert you. And um, unfortunately, we had to learn through the Australian media that this was the case. The story about Yusuf in a newspaper called The Australian was written really carefully. It doesn't say Yusuf definitely died. It says he's feared killed and later believed to have been killed. When it comes to naming the source of this information, about a third of the way through the article, it says, The Australian understands Kurdish and Australian authorities believe Yusuf is dead. This language sounds strange, but it's not that unusual in newspaper articles especially when they're about security issues. Reporters want to protect their sources, make it as hard as possible to figure out who inside the government has been talking. This story, I have to say, is unusually vague, but to Yusuf's family, after learning the Kurds had no idea where Yusuf was, 
the news that the Australian government might also now believe he was dead clinched it. We were shattered. We were absolutely shattered. Um, everyone, the, the extended family, the whole family, we were absolutely heartbroken. We were devastated. My dad, my dad is Yusuf's uncle. I have never seen my father. My dad's over 70. And to see him break down and then get so angry because this was completely avoidable. This was the baby of the family. This was our baby. And he was ripped from us and it didn't need to happen. Did you learn how he actually passed away? Like, did you get any details about when and where and how? Just this basic information. The only information we received was through the article, through the news reports. Um, There were news reports that were saying he died in the actual attack. But as to exact details of his death, I, I don't have any. We don't have any. The idea that an Australian child could die in the custody of an ally and nobody would know how or where, or even if he was really dead, was kind of unbelievable to me. I tried myself to piece together what might have happened to Yusuf. One of the people I called was Peter Galbraith, an author and former US diplomat who's worked in the region for decades. He's been lobbying governments to take their citizens back and physically going into the camps and prisons and bringing men, women and children home. He said the ISIS attack on the prison and the siege that followed was chaotic, incredibly brutal, and left the prison and the surrounding area scattered with the bodies of ISIS fighters, Kurdish troops and prisoners. They lost track of of hundreds of people uh, uh, during the siege uh, and afterwards, uh, and there were lots of bodies and, uh, you know, they, they, they... they, had, they didn't have the resources to identify any of them. Uh, and so there was a, a mass burial. So I, I think they, they, they simply don't know who among the people in the prison um, died and uh, who might have escaped. Only after the smoke cleared were the Kurds able to take stock of the aftermath. Eventually they were able to take a census of, of who survived. Uh, and Yosef was not there. So this leads me to believe that he, he must have died during or in the immediate aftermath of the siege. Mm, I see. I see. Others, like Yusuf's family, aren't so sure of this story. Hala said she was in constant contact with Yusuf throughout the siege. He had received instructions on how to surrender. He was to walk out and turn to the left where troops would be waiting and identify himself as an Australian. In the last message he sent her, that's what he was about to do. I have a voice clip which, um, you know, it's the last one he actually sent through saying, "I'm we're surrendering. Someone who wasn't able to walk or was in such a terrible condition that he was not likely to make it wouldn't be able to even say those words. So he was confident in the fact that he could still move around. Yes, he had injuries, but he could move around and he could get to where he needed to get to. Um, He was still conversing. He was having, you know, conversations and, and he was very clear in his speech. 
So Hulla believes that if Yusuf died, it must have been some time afterwards. And through my own reporting, I've managed to establish that the Australian government also believes Yusuf did survive the siege. But now, more than six months later, they can't explain what's happened since. If he died, how and where? And if he is still alive, somehow, to get some proof and show the family? Officially, all they told us was that they were seeking further information on his welfare. Yusuf's family held his funeral a few weeks ago in Sydney. But they can't really get closure. They're always wondering, what happened to Yusuf? Was he actually killed in the prison raid in January? Or did he die of his wounds or of tuberculosis sometime later? Maybe he wasn't dead at all, just lost in a prison that's become a black hole for hundreds of children. Another thing I learned is that Yusuf isn't the only teenager who's vanished since the siege. Finula Nealine, a UN special rapporteur, has been investigating the January attack and its aftermath. My office has been able to determine that we have at least 100 missing children. That is, children that we believe were either killed in this assault or have been moved elsewhere, but do not have contact with their family members to determine whether they're still alive or not. And that, to be honest, may be a conservative estimate. 100 missing children, among them Brits, Australians, whose families cannot get in touch with them. Well, that's right. And we have urged those governments, including the United Kingdom, including Australia, to take their responsibilities to these children to heart, to practice, at the very minimum, to give families who may have lost children the the human dignity of acknowledging that the child is still alive or not. And in cases like Yusuf's case, to give the family an accounting of the circumstances of the child's death. Whatever happened to Yusuf, whether he died in that terrible siege in January, or sometime later, or somehow is still alive, it doesn't really change the questions at the heart of this. What was he still doing in Syria, three years after he and his family were separated at that checkpoint? And what is the end game with these prisons, with this whole system? Are we really safer, leaving thousands of children to grow up behind bars or barbed wire? There isn't an easy solution, but it seems like the plan right now is just to do nothing and hope the problem somehow vanishes the same way that Yusuf did. What do you make of the excuses of the Australian government that that getting out Yusuf and others in the same position was either logistically too difficult or, or may have posed a danger to the Australian public? Well... Uh, first, I have brought 35 people uh, out of northeast Syria. This is uh, 31 children and, and four adults. And I am a private citizen, and I've made more than 20 trips there. 
uh, I think it, it, it is perfectly safe to visit. Uh, uh, it's something that the Australian government could easily do. Now, in terms of the danger that the, the citizens pose, yes, I think that's a, that's a, a real question. But it's not a question that applies to children. Um, yes, I mean, the adults all chose to go to Syria to join a terrorist organization, but the children didn't. Coming up, it might be too late for Yusuf. What about the other children still behind bars in Syrian prisons? Hala, do you ever feel anger about what happened to Yusuf? And if so, who do you feel angry at? I'm angry at the previous government because they had ample opportunity to get him out. And unfortunately, the only conclusion that we could come to was it just was not a popular cause. Politically, it was not popular. They had every opportunity. We had... ICRC willing to help to facilitate the repatriation. We had the US government, the troops on the ground saying, we can do it. You know, there were multiple organizations that were willing to aid and other countries had done it. It was absolutely doable and yet they chose to do nothing. So yes, the previous government, we were angry. There are lots of different versions of how Yusuf came to be in Syria. That his family were tricked, or that they were forced over at gunpoint, or that they went voluntarily. The Australian government says Yusuf's dad, Hisham, sold the family home before he left for Syria, like he never planned to come back. And he's been charged in Kuwait with crimes including financing terrorism. He'll never be able to argue his innocence in a court. He's believed to have died in prison from tuberculosis. And what kind of court could ever try someone like Yusuf, who spent the first 11 years of his life as a normal kid, and then the next six, inside a war zone and then a prison? He had absolutely no choice in the matter. He was a young boy. He couldn't make decisions on his own. And there is just so much more to the story that we don't know about. We've said from day one, the families have said from day one, if there is anything that the government believes that anyone should answer to, bring them home, investigate and deal with them on home soil. And if not, then exonerate. You know, they were held for years and they ha- they still are. A Yusuf's mother and um, sister and, and nieces and nephews are held... <sighs> Without charge, they're detained in they're detained in camps um, with barbed wire. Yusuf would have turned eighteen this past April, become an adult, and moved to the men's ward of the prison. We just don't know if he survived that long, and nor does his family. Hello, y- you've never spoken out about Yusuf's story. You've never told anyone this story that you're telling us now. Why are you now choosing to speak out about it? I feel I owe him at least this much. 
that people hear his story. There was fear before um, we were trying to keep him as safe as possible. Uh, And now he's no longer with us, so he deserves to know that at least his story was told. There are also, you know, boys who are like Yusuf, who are still held in these male prisons, and they shouldn't be. They should be home. They should be taken home to their families. We don't need to lose anyone else. We shouldn't lose anyone else. These people, these Australian citizens should be brought home. Hala, in the days since you've learned that Yusuf passed away, I'm wondering what memories of him you have from when he was a kid. How does he exist in your memories? I can't get his smile out of my mind. Honestly, he had such a contagious smile. I had to break the news to my kids and I didn't want to, you know. I didn't want to have to do that, but I knew it was going to be in the media and they were probably going to see it. And so I had to do that before. My kids were heartbroken. They said, Mum, no. You know, Mum, we grew up with him. You started this interview with us, Hala, by saying that despite how devastated you feel, you know, you're a mum, you've got four kids and you'll have to eventually just move on. How hard do you think that's going to be? I'm trying not to think long-term, to be honest. Um, It's something that you have to take day by day. But again, I draw on my faith and I have no doubt that he he's in a better place and he's being taken care of. And, you know, this isn't goodbye. This is... um, We'll see you soon. Hala, I'm so sorry for you and your family's loss, but I, I thank you so much for sharing Yusuf's story with us. I really appreciate that. Thank you. That was Hala Zahab, the cousin of Yusuf Zahab, speaking to Michael Safi. This episode was produced and executive produced by Joshua Kelly and Sammy Kent. Sound design by Rudy Zagardlo. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. Additional production on this episode by Camilla Hannon. We'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story tomorrow. <laughs>